want to welcome everyone back to RUF tonight. Um, glad you're here. You know, tough weekend for Rebel fans. I cannot remember a time when I was more disappointed or even but mainly just sad after a sporting event than this past Saturday. But we live in a fallen world and so it's a mixture of sorrow and joy because shortly after the disappointment, I heard some really, really good news. And that is our intern, Caroline Dunklin, is engaged. <laughs> Caroline's in the back. You can check out the ring after RUF. Um, but Caroline, we're excited for you. Congratulations. Uh, again, if you're first time to RUF, we are going through the book of Revelation this semester. Uh, if you're new to RUF, it's our custom to just march straight through books of the Bible, rotating between Old Testament and New Testament. And this semester, uh, we're looking at the book of Revelation. And tonight, we're really on the, uh, at the end of our study. We're in chapter 19 tonight. And if you've been coming, one of the things that we've kind of reiterated over and over and over again throughout our time in Revelation is that Revelation is given to us by the Apostle John not to conceal, but to reveal things to us, namely the person and work of Jesus Christ. The agenda of the book of Revelation is not to scare you. It's not to confuse you and ramp up your anxiety. Revelation is given to us in order to bring encouragement, to bring comfort, and to bring clarity to our lives. And so I really hope, we've been in some tough passages in the past couple of weeks. If you've been here, we looked at the dragon, the beast, and last week the great prostitute. And today, we're going, tonight we're going to look at the great wedding feast of the Lamb. And my hope is, is that as we look at this passage, that it does all of those things. That you leave here tonight deeply encouraged and comforted and having more clarity on your life. And so if that's going to happen, we need to pray and ask God to help us. Let's pray together. Father, uh, lots of uh, places we come from tonight um, as we sit here uh, in Parish H Chapel. Some of us come into this uh, room tonight very discouraged. Some of us exhausted. Uh, some of us uh, feeling lots of shame uh, for the way our semester has turned out. Uh, some of us have not been to a meeting like this um, in a long, long time, and we're hoping for a word from you, something that we can hang on to um, as we leave this place. Others of us, um, Father, are wondering if you still care, if you still love us. And Lord, I pray that wherever we find ourselves tonight, that you would meet us. Jesus, that you would come and meet us exactly where we're at and show us your glory. Uh, challenge us and definitely convict us. Um, but show us your greatness and your love and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, many of you know this uh, because I talk about them a lot, but I am a father of all girls. I've got four girls, and the oldest is nine, and the youngest is three. 
And so I have really spent a decade of my life in pink in princesses, basically. Uh, a couple of nights ago, my three-year-old wanted me to read Sleeping Beauty to her. And I told her that I didn't need the book, that I basically had the story memorized because I had read it so many times. But I did read her uh, the book, uh, Sleeping Beauty. And as I was reading, it brought back some very fond memories for me. Uh, several years ago, we took all of our girls to Disney World. And our girls, again, they're obsessed with the Disney princesses. And so one of the things that we had planned months ahead of time was to have dinner in Cinderella's castle. And not only were we going to have dinner in Cinderella's castle, but we were going to uh, get there a couple of hours ahead of time and take our girls to the Bibbidi Boppity Boutique. If you know what that is, that's where you go. <laughs> That's where you go to get all dolled up for the royal ball, for dinner in Cinderella's castle. And so we took our girls in, and they got to pick out these wonderful dresses for dinner. They got to sit in a chair, and someone pampered them and put makeup on them and did their nails and did their hair all fancy. And then they were, they were feeling like a princess. They were feeling like Cinderella like Belle. And so we walk over into Cinderella's castle and we have dinner. And if you've done this before, you know at some point in dinner, at, uh, during dinner, all of the Disney princesses come out and they mingle and go from table to table. And I wish I had a picture of my girls' faces when they saw these princesses come out. There were tears in their eyes because to them, these were the real princesses, the ones that they had been reading about and the ones that they had seen in the movies. Elizabeth, her favorite is Belle, and at one point, Belle comes over and kisses Elizabeth on the cheek. And she did not want to wash that cheek <laughs> the rest of the week. Why is that? Why are we so drawn in and captivated in love princess stories? Or maybe it's not princess stories, but stories like that. Romantic comedies, whatever it is for you that draws you in and captivates you and moves you. Why does it move us so deeply? Because if we're honest, that's what we want to happen to us. We long for someone deep down in our soul who will come, a prince if you will, and pursue us and rescue us and love us and delight in us and marry us. That's Revelation 19. The good news of Revelation 19 is that's not just a fairy tale. But that is actually true, and that is reality, because this passage shows us that there is a prince who comes and rescues us and pursues us at all costs, even at the cost of his life, in order to be with us. It shows us that there is one who loves us as a beast and actually changes us. It shows us a picture in Revelation 19 of a prince who comes and loves common people like us and actually brings us into his royal family. 
And his name is Jesus. And in Revelation 19, John gives us a very vivid picture, an image, remember, Revelation is full of images and it's symbolic. He gives us these visions in order to move us. They're not meant to amuse us. They're meant to move us. And John comes and shows before us tonight this picture of heaven and it's an image of a wedding. And what's interesting is really the whole last few chapters of the book of Revelation shows us a picture of a wedding. Why do we need a wedding? Why do we need to see this tonight? Think about Revelation and who it's written to in the original audience. John is writing to Christians who are following Jesus and who are being persecuted and suffering and being crucified, are being thrown and being torn apart in the Colosseum by wild beasts who are being set on fire and who are actually being beheaded for their faith. And that is not fiction. That really happened. And John is coming to them, and he's coming to us tonight. And yes, our suffering, it might not be the exact same, but he comes to us tonight in the middle of whatever it is that we're going through. In the middle of our bitterness and discouragement and suffering and cynicism and apathy and our unmet expectations and our shame for what we did last weekend, He comes to us just like He comes to them and says, let me pull back the curtain and let me show you something. And John pulls back the curtain and says, look at heaven. It's worth it. Let me show you a wedding. Endure. Don't give up. Don't quit. Because there's someone that's coming for you. There's someone who is going to rescue you and love you and marry you. See, John is showing us the great wedding feast of the Lamb. Tonight we're going to look at three things. If you have an outline about this wedding, we're going to look at the occasion, the guest list, and the attire or the dress code. Let's look at number one, the occasion. So why the celebration in heaven? What's the occasion? Because if you look, a lot of chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, we have hallelujah, hallelujah. The multitudes are crying out and praising God. Why are they crying out and praising God? Look at verses 1 through 5. It's pretty sobering, actually, if you think about it. But heaven is crying out and praising God because He is a just judge who came and executed justice on the great prostitute of Babylon that we learned about last week. But then look at verses 6 through 8. They're praising again. They burst out in song. Why? Because now they're celebrating a wedding. They burst out in praise because God is not only the just judge, but He's also a passionate lover who pursues His people to the end. They praise God because they know that God will not consume them and God does not just tolerate them, but He is a God who is going to join Himself to them in marriage. And what's interesting is if we were to come up at 30,000 feet and look at the Bible, 
and an overview and from a big picture perspective, you know what we would find? The Bible actually begins with a wedding and it also ends with a wedding. You've heard me say this a lot, but remember back in Genesis chapter 2, God created man, human beings, in His image. God exists in community with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you and I are created in His, in His image, which means that community and relationships are part of our DNA. You were built for relationships. That is why in those early chapters of Genesis, it said God created it, it was good, it was good, it was good, and then it got up to He created man, and it was not good that He was alone. And so what did He do? He made a helper suitable for Him, and He gave Eve to Adam, and then in Genesis chapter 2, we have the first wedding. And God is officiating the wedding. And the two became one flesh, And God gives us that picture as a picture of the relationship that He wants to have with His people. And the tragedy is that this couple actually didn't want to join themselves to God in that way. And so they decided in Genesis chapter 3 to rebel against Him. And from that point on, the story of the Bible is this. The husband heart of God chasing after his adulterous people until the end of time. And he's chasing after his people, not because he just wants to get people to serve him. He's chasing after his people because he wants to marry them. And so we get to Revelation 19, and guess what? He wins! He accomplishes that task and God wins that quest and that's why all of the multitudes are breaking out in praise because they're celebrating this wedding that is going to happen when Jesus returns and unites His people to Himself. So how do we know it's a celebration? Well, look at verse 9. A better word to be used there is not supper, but feast. And so it's not just a good meal. It's a feast. And feasting is an important image in the Bible that is used to describe heaven. Matthew 22, you can look it up later, but Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like what? Or the kingdom of heaven is like a king who is throwing a wedding feast for his son. Isaiah 25, verse 6. Listen to this incredible verse. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And I love what one commentator says. Apparently, from reading the Bible, heaven is not going to be a low-cholesterol affair. I like that. It's going to be a feast. That is what heaven is going to be like. 
It's going to be a celebration. And so think about right now the greatest wedding reception that you've ever been to. The greatest party that you've ever been to. Or the greatest Thanksgiving feast that you've ever had. As good as it is, what happens? It always ends. It always ends and leaves you wanting more. And the picture of heaven is that heaven is a feast and a celebration that is going to last for all eternity. That is never going to end. And here's my question. Is that your heaven? Is that the heaven that you think of when you think about eternal life? I really want this image to hit us. And the reason why is because so often, I know this is what I grew up thinking, and maybe some of you think this as well, but my picture of heaven was souls kind of floating around in heaven, and we would get wings, and we would wear some white robe, and we would play an instrument, maybe a harp, and we would sit on a cloud, and we would sing in a choir. And the only problem with that is I'm not musical, and so that sounds like misery to me. It reminds me of the It reminds me of the Far Side cartoon. The Far Side cartoon where there's a new arrival in heaven and they go and they sit on a cloud and they get a harp and they get a new set of wings and there's the bubble over the guy's head and it says I wish I would have brought a magazine. Exactly. That's not it. Friends, heaven is a celebration and a feast. It's all you can eat at City Grocery for eternity. It's a celebration that makes the best day in the Grove on a Saturday afternoon look like the lamest party on the planet. Do you believe that? And that is intended to bring joy to you right now, tonight. That is intended to be a thing of encouragement to you. Because Jesus tells us that's the reality that is coming. And if you're a Christian here tonight, and there's no joy in your life, and when you hear that, you don't smile. Or when you sing these hymns and think about Jesus or hear about Jesus, you do not smile. You have missed something about Christianity. You have missed something about the Gospel. And I don't say that to make you feel guilty. I say that to make you curious. What have you missed? Because Christianity is not just a worldview that is to be adopted. It is something that is to go all the way down to the center of your being and to grip your affections in your heart and move you and give you joy. That's the first thing. What's the occasion? A feast. A wedding feast. A wedding celebration. Secondly, the guest list. Who's on the guest list? That's really what we want to know, right? If you have a friend group and there's a wedding that's taking place within your group of friends or sphere, your social network, what is the first question you're asking? I wonder if I'm going to get an invitation. 
I wonder if I'm good enough or if I'm good friends enough with that person that I'm actually going to get an invite to this wedding. And what's your deepest fear? Your deepest fear is that everyone else is going to get an invitation and you will be left out. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. it's actually on your handout. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come! And let the one who is thirsty, let him come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price, let them come. Here's the great thing about this wedding and about this guest list. In Revelation 19, every single person in this room is invited. Everyone. God invites all types of people to come and to enjoy this wedding feast. Whatever your ethnicity, whatever your race, whatever your economic background, whatever your doubt and your apathy and your cynicism, whatever your social standing in the community, whatever it is, God says, come. Come to this feast and enjoy it. He invites you. But you've got to take the invitation and you've got to open it and you've got to go to the party. Listen, I don't know what brought you into RUF tonight. But I can tell you this. It's not an accident that you're here. God has you here. For a very specific reason, and in front of every single person in this room, sits an invitation on the table for you to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And some of you, maybe you're thinking... Jason, yes, I want that. I want more than anything to take that invitation and to open it and to go to this wedding party. That's what I want. But Jason, you don't know me. You don't know who I am and you don't know my life is a mess. And I've had a terrible semester And I can do a lot of things, but one thing I am not, and that is worthy, you say, to go to this wedding. Let me remind you, if that's you tonight, let me remind you of Luke 15. You remember Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son? The younger brother gets his inheritance and he goes off and he squanders all this money away on prostitutes and he is rock bottom, bottom of the barrel, and he decides to go back home. And on his way back home, he is rehearsing over and over his speech that he's going to give his father because he knows, he, he just expects that he's going to be the lowliest person in the house and doing all of the worst chores because of what he's done. And you remember the story. The father is not just sitting there tapping his foot, waiting for the son to come. No, the the father sees him and what? Takes off. And he runs to his son. And when he gets to his son, he doesn't lecture him. But he throws his arms around him and he loves him and he kisses him and he gives him the finest robe and he puts a ring on his finger and he throws a feast. He kills the fattened calf and throws a feast. He spares no expense. Why? Because his son has come home. And Jesus tells us that parable to show us what God's like. 
Jesus shows us that parable to show that God is the kind of Father who throws parties for people who don't deserve it. Friends, Christianity is not for the people that have it all together. Christianity is not for the good people or the religious people. The good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ is that God pursues people that don't pursue Him. In fact, God pursues people that are actually running the opposite way. The good news of Christianity is that God pursues people that are apathetic and angry and immoral and rebellious and unwilling to forgive, you name it. God pursues them. He pursues you. And He gets us, and when He gets us, the image is almost as if He throws His arms around us and kind of grabs us by the collar in a loving way and says, look at me. I love you. And I want to marry you. That's what the wedding feast is about. That's what Revelation 19 is all about. They are throwing the celebration because of the mercy and the grace of God. And they're celebrating His worthiness, not our worthiness. And the question is, are you going to open the invitation? The question is, are you going to go to the party? You're on the guest list. Will you come? So we've seen the occasion, the guest list, and thirdly and finally, the dress code or the attire for this wedding. Look at verses 7 and 8. My favorite verses in the passage. But notice how we will be dressed. His bride has made herself ready and it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And here's what I want us to think about. Notice it says that the bride's clothing or dress was given to her. That these fine linens... And so what is the assumption there? If something had to be given to her, these clean, pure garments, the assumption is that she has not always been beautiful. And here's what blew me away. I've never seen this before. And I've read Revelation a few times in my life. Look at verse 10. Look at what John says about himself. And by the way, this is part of the proof that the Bible is authentic and inerrant and infallible. Because John is the last living apostle at this time and no one would have the dare have the courage to write this, much less would John write this about himself if this were false and something that were made up. Because John, think about who John is. He saw Jesus. He touched Jesus. He was at the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw the resurrected body of Jesus. He wrote several books in the New Testament. And look at verse 10. His feet, look at the, think about the vision, his feet from the throne of God. And he worships an angel. His feet from the throne room of God. 
and he falls down and he commits idolatry. And not only once, look at chapter 22, verses 8 and 9, he actually does it again. Think of it like this. You're at a wedding rehearsal, and you go to the wedding rehearsal, and you know, you're going through the service, and the bride and groom are up there, and the bride suddenly goes over and starts kissing one of the groomsmen. What would you conclude? They're not ready to get married. John is in the presence of the groom and he kisses the wrong bride. Think about how unattractive that is, but here's what I want you to see. The groom is so in love with his bride that he says, John, come. You're still welcomed here. And I don't know about you, but that's the most encouraging, incredible news in the world. Because if you're like me, very rarely can my life be described as fine, as bright, and as pure. But notice the dress doesn't come from her. The dress is given to her. Look at verse 8. It was granted, or some of your translations might say, it was given to her. Jesus gives you your dress for your wedding day. It's not something that you have to come up with on your own. And He gives you His dress. And you know what his re- dre- the dress is? It's His righteousness, His purity, His beauty, His loveliness. That's beautiful. Because what it is saying is that He makes us beautiful because we are beautiful to Him. Jesus really does find you lovely. And think about the implications for that. I mean, there are huge implications if we believe that by faith because so much of our lives is spent using other people and doing anything and everything in order to get love from other people. And when we do that, what happens? We make a mess of our lives, don't we? We make a mess because it's never enough and people don't love us enough or the way that we think they should and so we get angry and we get frustrated and we get mad and we yell and scream and we don't do it maybe externally but internally we are saying, I'm worthy to be loved. Somebody love me. You are worthy to be loved. And somebody does love you. And that is why Jesus says, I love you and I'm going to make you my bride. I'm going to marry you. And I'm going to give you security and love and care and protection. And when that grips you, guess what? You can take the slander from your peers. When that grips you, you can step out in faith and trust Him because you know He loves you and you can take risk. 
And you can serve the people around you rather than use them. Because you know that no matter what, someone is always going to love you. You also don't have to care what people think of you because the verdict is actually already in on you. And you are beautiful in the eyes of the only person that really matters. And my question is, do you believe that tonight? Do you believe that Jesus thinks you're beautiful and that He doesn't just tolerate you and put up with you, but He actually really, really loves you and thinks you're great? I heard a story from Ricky Jones. He was a former campus minister with RUF. And before he was a campus minister, he was an intern at Tennessee. And he tells a story about one of the most remarkable and radical and dramatic conversions to Christianity that he had ever witnessed. It was a guy who was hard into drugs, uh, extremely depressed, so depressed he was rock bottom that he wanted to end his life. And so he attempted suicide. He poured gasoline on himself and lit himself on fire. The neighbor across the street was a a young college-age girl. She comes running out. She sees this happening, comes running out, grabs a blanket, throws it on him, begins to roll with him on the ground in order to smother and to put out the fire. He's obviously, you know, you can imagine, burned pretty badly and is in the hospital recovering uh, for a long, long time. But this girl that actually saved his life visited the hospital every single day and talked with him and visited with him and read scripture to him and prayed with him. And he was eventually converted to Christianity and they ended up getting married. And throughout the engagement, you can imagine the shame that he felt for what he had done. You can imagine the embarrassment that he felt for the way that he looked. And he describes the wedding night and he says that his wife took off his shirt and spent an hour kissing his scars from the burns. Spent an hour applying her love and grace to the place of his shame. Applying her love and grace to the place of his embarrassment. I don't know where you are tonight. And I don't know what you've done. But Jesus touches you in the place of your shame. He touches you in the place of your embarrassment. And He says... I love you. It's going to be okay. You're mine. You belong to me. And you're beautiful. And some of you tonight, as you hear that, you're saying, Jason, that sounds too good to be true. Because I feel guilty and I feel dirty and I feel unworthy. Remember what we've learned in Revelation. Things are not as they seem. Because reality is, if you are a Christian, 
Jesus says that you're a beautiful, radiant bride. That's reality. That's the truth. Your prince is coming. The only question is, are you ready for your wedding? Let's pray.